Hi everyone, and welcome to the Cut to Black podcast. I'm your host, Nick, and for the inaugural episode, I thought that I should somehow maybe talk about myself and introduce myself personally. And what better way is there to go about doing that than to talk to you about my favorite films? I think it was um, Jean-Luc Godard who said, if a man and a woman don't love the same films, then they should get divorced. <laughs> and um, obviously I don't condone that, right? You know, you guys take that quote as you will. I didn't say anything. But I think it does, in some ways, speak a point that is valuable, which is the films that we love and the movies that we enjoy speak a lot about us. And yeah, I mean, hopefully these films aren't going to reveal anything negative or exploit or expose me somehow. But yeah, that's in short what I'm going to be doing today. I'm going to be going through my top four favorite films, ranked in order, with a few honorable mentions. And I will keep this spoiler-free, hopefully, especially because I want to go into more detail in these films in the future, in future episodes, going individually. So obviously I'm going to avoid spoilers, but um, yeah. I think first what's important to note is that you know there's two kinds of favorite films, right? There's the kind of movies which you just can't, burn out on, right? You can't run out of fuel. You've seen these movies countless times, hundreds of times, and you can recite each line of dialogue front to back and back to front. You know, some movies just allow you to have this persistent passion for them. Some movies you can just love for so long that they'll never stop loving you back, right? And even if you do get bored of them, in a weird way, you can't stop loving them because you love the fact that you love them for so long, if that makes sense. But um, on the flip side, some favorite films don't need many viewings at all. Sometimes someone can decide, this is my favorite film after two or even one viewing. And I think um, with these kinds of films, the impact is not strongest as you're watching it, but in the precise moment that the credits roll. These are the kinds of movies that ask the big questions about life, that challenge us, that challenge the audience members, and you know these kinds of movies that raise conversations. That's what makes these kinds so valuable. So, without further ado, I guess I'll be going to my honorable mentions. So, firstly, we have *Children of Men* from Alfonso Cuarón, then *Doctor Strangelove* from Stanley Kubrick, *Moonlight*, directed by Barry Jenkins, *Underground* by Emir Kusturica, and finally, Andrei Rublev by Andrei Tarkovsky. So, all of these movies are brilliant, right? I love them, and there's no specific reason as to why they're not in my top four list, other than the fact that I just simply don't love them as much as I love the movies in my top four list. So, yeah, without waiting, let's go into number four. The small scenes, the fragments of the mirror, you remember those? Vaguely. What do you remember? There's a, a room, and I sit there alone, always alone. Number four on my list is Vertigo, from director Alfred Hitchcock. Released in 1958, this film stars James Stewart and Kim Novak. And there is an interesting story to tell here, which is that it actually received universally negative reviews when it was released, and apparently even... Hitchcock himself resented the movie. It was one of the five lost Hitchcocks, as they were known. Five movies which 
Hitchcock bought the rights to and left to his daughter. So effectively, right, Vertigo was out of circulation for 20 years. It disappeared. You couldn't watch it. You couldn't find prints of this movie. It was lost. And only in the 80s, once it was re-released, was there a newfound hysteria for this movie. As of the most recent sight and sound poll, it's ranked as the greatest movie of all time. So basically, Hitchcock went to the grave thinking that this was his disaster, when in reality, nowadays, people think that this is his, his chef d'oeuvre, his masterpiece, right? And I want to give a brief synopsis for this film, right? But really, I can't. I mean, I'll try to. Basically, Vertigo follows Scotty, a former detective who retired due to a traumatic experience, I say, which induced a fear of heights in him. However, Scotty returns back to work after an old friend asks him for a favor. The man wants Scotty to follow his wife, Madeline, played by Kim Novak, theorizing that she had been possessed by her great-grandmother. Now, <laughs> that synopsis it is accurate, and it is the starting point of the movie, but it doesn't describe the film accurately at all as to where it goes from that point. I mean, it sounds like a conventional Hitchcock thriller, right? But really, I don't think Vertigo is a conventional Hitchcock thriller. It's not about that murder mystery aspect of it. It's not about that ticking the talk, the intense, the intensity of it. Even though there is this tension in the film, it's not the sort of tension that is in Rear Window, for example. It's this slow background, drawing it out, this just slight anxiety in the back, this feeling of the film being just a tad off its wavelength. That's the kind of tension that's present in Vertigo. And I think what's most magnetic about this film, at least what I find most magnetic about it, is how the writing, directing, and acting even, all form this very deep ocean of a film, yet it's a very blurry ocean. And I feel at least that every time I watch it, I feel like I'm watching a new movie. It never feels like I'm returning to the same set of conclusions or ideas about these characters and their relationships. There's always some sense of discovery and a different interpretation with every watch. So, for example, the first time I watched it, I was just very confused and lost in the plot, in a sense, and didn't quite understand what the film was trying to say, really because you can't think about those sort of things, right? You are in this maze with the characters, and you can't think about the movie objectively, right? On your second watch, at least on my second watch, I found it to be a metaphor for false love, and in particular, how the male psyche can fall in love with the idea of a woman, rather than the woman herself. And I was pretty settled on this theory for so long, I was genuinely proud of it. I had, you know, tons of evidence that built up, clues, imagery, like, I was so obsessed to the point with this film, and to my theory about it. And a few months later, I watched Vertigo a third time. And all of a sudden, the man isn't the center of attention for me. It's the woman. And 
as I was so eager to see my theory work in practice, I was lost and it felt like I was seeing the movie for the first time again because all of a sudden Vertigo plays as a tale of exploitation. A story about how toxic men can groom and sexually manipulate women, carving them, twisting them into whatever fulfills their desires, to the point where the woman ultimately symbolically destroys herself. At this third viewing, watching Vertigo, it became such a painfully voyeuristic experience. I felt gross, disgusting watching the movie. And that's Vertigo for you, right? It feels and seems like a very classic Hollywood movie, but it isn't that at all. And I really do think that it's quite malleable as a film in the sense that your interpretation of it depends as to what you bring into it. There's always something new to find in Vertigo, and it really is ahead of its time, quite frankly. Even the performances, I feel, were way ahead of the time. What Stewart and Novak do with their roles, again, initially, on that first viewing, right, does seem very sort of classic Hollywood, you know, golden age era, as they'd say. Or, I mean, I'm not even sure if that's the right way to describe it, but sort of classic old-school Hollywood. Some people have said that Kim Novak was wooden in this movie, but when re-watching it, no, you don't get that impression at all. The performances are very subtle, and subtle to the point where, again, when you have those different interpretations and theories about Vertigo, their performances work in all those interpretations. Their performances can be interpreted in so many different ways in which you wouldn't assume at all, generally. So I think, all in all, Vertigo is a fantastic movie from a technical standpoint as well. There are so many things to mention from the score by Bernard Herrmann, which is just completely nauseating and spiraling, very much fitting in with the name of the movie, Vertigo, and that theme. Even the intro sequence by Saul Bass, fantastic, beautiful visual art. And Vertigo is a brilliant film, maybe Hitchcock's most personal movie. Of course, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the story of um, Hitchcock's obsession with blondes and his, I wouldn't say disturbing, but um, perhaps very personal intrigues in women. So this movie, in a sense, does expose those, and it's a movie which increases in intimacy the more you watch it, but also increases in discomfort. I don't love it, I say. I don't think you can maybe love a movie like that in a romantic sense, but instead I'll say that I feel seduced by it, always drawn to it by something inexplicable. Vertigo is a very magnetic movie, a very gravitating movie, and it is number four on my list. But I need a nuclear reaction to, to generate the 1.21 gigawatts of electricity. 1.21 I... gigawatts! 1.21 gigawatts! Great Scott! What the hell is a gigawatt? Number three, Back to the Future. You know how I said at the start of this podcast, of this episode, that some of those favorites are the kinds of movies that you just cannot stop watching? And that's exactly what Back to the Future is for me. Uh, released in 1985, the movie follows the adventures of Marty McFly and his best friend, Doc Brown, 
who has invented a time-traveling DeLorean, which Marty then uses to go back to 1955. Now, I love this movie so much. I've genuinely seen it hundreds of times. I loved it since I was a kid. I love it now as a late teenager, and I'm pretty certain that I love it even as an adult and as an older person. So it feels very much like an 80s movie. It feels like a product of its time. It feels like a Spielberg movie, weirdly. And it's interesting because so many people who I talk to about this film, they get that same sense too. Like if you asked me a year ago, right, what my favorite Spielberg was, I tell you Back to the Future now. Obviously, Spielberg didn't direct Back to the Future. It was Robert Zemeckis. I don't know how I wasn't aware of that. But, um, I mean, maybe that does go to show the influence that Spielberg has had on the era. But regardless, going back to the original point, I think the reason Back to the Future feels very 80s is because it was a movie that defined the 80s. So much of that culture in that time period was shaped by the film. And in retrospect, we can go back and say that maybe the 80s didn't have an influence on Back to the Future. Maybe it was the other way around. Every scene is not just memorable, but it's also iconic. The script is brilliant. It's so funny and so entertaining, but also smart and sharp. Smart, weirdly, in the same way that a whodunit mystery thriller is. You know how when you rewatch those movies and pick up on the clues as to who the killer is, right? Obviously, Back to the Future isn't that kind of a story, but it does have that level of depth to it. That complexity which generates its rewatchability. I mean, it is so rewatchable anyway. It's just based off of the comedy and the performances, which I'll get to later. But again, those small details just scattered throughout make it so much better. I suppose it is minor spoilers, but for instance, the mayor of Hill Valley in 1985, starting off as a cafe busboy in 1955, when Marty accidentally invents the skateboard. And we see how the city in essence, looks the same in 1985 and 55, but all those small, tiny, just microscopic details, they're incredible. And they really build onto this impression of amazing world building and an amazing story. Just also one more thing quickly to mention. The music is unforgettable. Fantastic, amazing score from Alan Silvestri and also the way in which the film incorporates popular music. So for instance, Huey Lewis in the 80s, and then, um, you know, blues rock. I won't spoil the scene, but there is a scene in which Marty plays the guitar in 1955, which is probably just engraved itself into cinema history. Again, an amazing example of how music can be utilized well in a movie. In terms of the performances, right, and the actors, I think a lot of the time when talking about great performances, there's this kind of impression as to what great acting is, right? People usually assume that sort of the best performances are those where there's some kind of a mental breakdown, either from just over-the-top anger or some sort of depressed crying. I mean, not to discredit those kinds of performances, right? Obviously, it's great acting in itself, but in my experience, people don't take comedic performances seriously as dramatic performances. Almost as if, you know, comedy isn't as, isn't as serious, it's not real, deep acting. And that's nonsense, obviously. Some of the greatest performances and actors of all time, talking about Charlie Chaplin, Peter Sellers, 
they're comedic. And the performances, the comedic performances in Back to the Future are so underappreciated. Michael J. Fox is great. Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown is my personal favorite. I think he's everyone's personal favorite. But also, the gang of Leia Thompson, Thomas Wilson, and especially Crispin Glover, they are so good. And they have so much fun playing these characters. They had the opportunity to play around, right, with these individuals at different ages in 1985 and 1955. And I think that they just utilized that so well. It is important to appreciate, you know, like the humor, but I think there's also an intelligence to it. You begin to see how events in the past can ripple and influence a character's whole personality in the future. And though the script does take part of the credit for that, ultimately the performers the performers build on that text. And that's specifically why I love Crispin Glover in this film. I've heard arguments from people say that he's a bit too goofy, he's a bit, he's like overplaying it. Personally, he's perfect. He really sells that character in both time periods. And all I'll say is that he sells his character arc, or rather character arcs. For those who've seen the film, they know what I'm talking about. So in essence, right, I feel like Back to the Future is the pinnacle of escapist cinema. It's not pretentious, it's not artsy cinema, it's not kino, as some people would call it, but it's not hollow, no, it's a film full of love and passion, and it's just good storytelling. It's fun. Films like Back to the Future are the reason as to why we even go to the movies in the first place, and it's number three on my top four list. You're watching television. Suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. I'd kill it. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. My second favorite film on this list is Blade Runner. Now, my two favorite genres in film are probably science fiction and romance. And although Blade Runner does happen to contain both those genres, that's not the point that my topic of discussion is. On science fiction, right, the reason that I love science fiction so much is not because there's any specific element within it that I like. Quite frankly, I couldn't care about the laser guns, the spaceships, the aliens. To me at least, sci-fi isn't a genre It's rather a mold of sorts. It's a vehicle for storytelling, whether it's intimate tales or grand epics. There's just such a capability of the stories that you can tell with science fiction, which is why I respect and love that genre so much. Within Blade Runner, there is just so much life in the world building. There's certain shots where They could have cut earlier, right? They could have, you know, shortened the length of the shot, but they just hold longer for a few extra seconds and let the audience breathe in with the film to see what's going on in the background. People riding on bikes, walking through the city, riding through the skies of L.A. And, you know, these types of things may sacrifice rhythm, 
and pacing. But ultimately, they add life to the film. And it's worth it because it builds the atmosphere. And part of that building of the atmosphere is Evangelis' score, which is incredible. There is such a grand sense to it, a feeling of epicness, of an incredibly vast and mysterious and unknowable world. But equally, a use of some very familiar instruments and some very simple musical motifs which can tell so much. And an example of this is, I feel, the love theme in, on the soundtrack of the film, one of my favorite themes, but also the tears and rain music, which, again, very sensible, personal, and intimate. Not something that you would typically expect, again, in a science fiction movies, films that have that vast sense of scale to them. And on the topic of tears and rain, again, there is the monologue in the film, the tears and rain monologue from Rutger Hauer, and his performance in this film is my personal favorite performance in the film, and one of my favorite all-time performances. I don't want to sort of, again, talk negatively of Harrison Ford or his performance, which was good, right? But for me, Rutger Hauer is the standout in this film, and I always, when talking to people, I just say, you know, this performance is very Shakespearean. The dialogue, just the gravitas as to how he carries himself. He is an incredible actor. It's a real shame he, he passed away when he did a few years ago, but again, this, is, this film is one of those films that will be remembered, and it's a contributor to his legacy. In terms of the, film, the themes of the film, I think that they are becoming more and more relevant now in our contemporary society, and it's very interesting how Blade Runner presents society and how society has evolved, how there's mixed lingos on the streets of different languages, including Japanese, English, German. It's very fascinating. And also how far the wealth and inequality has been drawn, how far the racial and ethnic inequalities have been created, to the point where it's between humans themselves and the replicants who are regarded not just as a subspecies, but as a completely different life form. I think Blade Runner is a very humbling movie, and a movie which speaks greatly on humanity. It's a reminder of what it is to be human, what it is to feel love, and although watching this film has instilled certain sem um, senses of insecurity in me about, you know, whether I feel like I'm human enough, I'm enough of a person, whether I feel like my love and my feelings towards people are valid. It is also very romantic in how it portrays the beauty of those things. And I think that Blade Runner is a truly lovely film and one which I believe more people should watch.
So, here we are. The number one film on my list. My apparent all-time favorite film. By the way, I think it's... This is now a good point to mention that my lists change a lot. <laughs> These films probably aren't going to stay in this order, but as you could probably assume from the sounds that you heard, my favorite movie of all time is Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Which It's, it's interesting because it's almost too recent of a film to be a favorite, right? It only came out three years ago. It does feel like whenever a film is judged or deemed in society as a masterpiece, rarely is it almost an instant masterpiece. It does take lots of time for a film to be correctly evaluated, as we've heard with Vertigo and how it took decades for the movie to be loved. But with Dunkirk, I think the moment that I realized that it was my favorite is a very recent experience again during lockdown my local cinema right a local cinema close to my area which luckily had an IMAX screen they re-released Dunkirk in IMAX and I actually hadn't seen it in the cinema so I decided okay I'll take my family to go see Dunkirk in IMAX and unfortunately the cinema was empty right now okay in, in some sense yes it's fortunate because COVID and it's safe, but, you know, excluding health factors and pandemic influence, it was tragic to see such a film not be appreciated by the community here. And seeing Dunkirk in IMAX, it was a two-hour anxiety attack. And I say that literally because there were specific moments that I can remember when I felt that my hands were trembling and that I genuinely had lost control of my breathing. That was the impact that this film had had on me in IMAX. When we talk about magnum opuses, right, how every sort of filmmaker has their own magnum opus, their grand epic masterpiece, it's quite funny because all of Nolan's films could be magnum opuses in someone else's filmography. And especially, that's certainly true, especially for the post-Dark Knight era. When Nolan made Dark Knight, he made a billion dollars for Warner Bros. And they pretty much gave him a blank check to make massive movies after that. When he made Inception, Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, most recently Tenet. And um, to me, though, Dunkirk is a very interesting film because it's not quite like those other movies. It's... Not a story which Nolan chooses to tell in a grand scale. It's a story which demands to be told in such a scale. To me, Dunkirk is with Come and See as one of the greatest war films of all time because he takes the medium of cinema to places where it genuinely hasn't been before. He utilizes the screen and sound to perfection and I mean to absolute perfection. I don't generally like war movies, if I'm honest with you, just because even in, you know, anti-war movies, like, for instance, Saving Private Ryan, which is a great film, right? The specific elements of war, which are, you know, like the actual war scenes, the most, I won't say interesting, but the most intense and vital components, are only just scenes scattered throughout, right? And, you know, this goes for most war movies, right? 
The rest just plays as a typical story, a typical drama with characters, with their own personal backstories and motivations and goals and where they have to go and they have to get this and then they have a disagreement and they fight but at the end they are together, they are brothers and blah blah blah. Dunkirk is the opposite. And this is, this was a criticism of the movie. People critique the movie for not having complex characters which I just found ridiculous because that was the point of Dunkirk. The intention was for there to be no characters. The intention was for there just to be people, a collective of soldiers in Dunkirk, of fragile, weak boys. And the goal was for us to empathize with them, not on the basis of some, of some backstory that their father passed away when they were four, or they come from poverty. The film asked us to empathize with it on the basis of the situation, of the fact that there were bombs dropping on their head. And that, I think, was enough. And that, I think, functioned. In terms of the editing and the writing, this is a movie where writing, editing, and directing weave throughout each other. It's a movie which is told in the editing. And it goes through different locations of time, land, and sea. The movie is based off of those... Sorry, not time, of land, sea, and air, excuse me. Of land, where we see soldiers on a mole waiting for ships to come, in the sea where we see civilian ships going to Dunkirk, and in the air where we see Spitfires trying to defend the soldiers on the ground. And it is very elemental, but again, it's very genius, I think, as to how the movie is irrespective of time. It ignores time. It isn't afraid to jump back and forth because... The reality is that what Nolan understood with Dunkirk is something that not many directors have understood before. It doesn't matter what happens, right? If you're a soldier who's been to Dunkirk or has been in war in general, and after you fight and you look back at those moments, with your post-traumatic stress disorder, you're not going to have a specific linear memory of what happened. Your memory is going be, be, to be defined of those moments where your life was at risk where you could potentially die, where you had to survive, those moments of absolute tension. And that's what Nolan understood with Dunkirk. He edited the film, Lee Smith and Nolan, edited the film on the basis of tension, of maximizing the tension in the audience. As I, as I had mentioned, I felt like I had an anxiety attack in the movie. That's what they intended. I think someone referred to it as the snowball effect, but yeah, that's in a sense how the film was edited, how the story was told. When it comes to the sound design and the music, to me this is maybe my favorite score in a film. Not as in I would listen to it because, oh my days, <laughs> it's not a pleasant experience listening to the score, but I just love what Hans Zimmer does with this. In his previous scores with Nolan, again, the emphasis was on creating atmosphere, on creating feeling. But, you know, when it comes to Inception, right, like there still is a classical component to it of classical melodies and harmonies. Dunkirk, the score to Dunkirk, is really just sound, <laughs> I say. It's, is sound, sounds that were created with intention to create atmosphere and effect. It's not like a classical music at all, as you'd assume. And sitting in the IMAX theater, where you can not hear, but feel the music bursting through your seat, it was an incredible experience. 
I think Dunkirk is a story of fear, above all. The genius in how it was directed. And I feel that this is the best movie that Nolan directed, his best example of his direction. We don't see the Germans. They aren't even described as Germans. They're just known as the enemy. They. And that's what I love about Dunkirk. It's not the classical war movie that you'd expect. It's a film about survival, and hence a film about a bare and an elemental component of humanity. I feel like Dunkirk is an incredibly, masterfully orchestrated film. For me, it's Christopher Nolan's masterpiece, and that is my favorite film. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of this podcast. I'm eager to getting around more episodes in the future, hopefully next week. And I guess all I have left to say is just one thing, and that is cut to black. Thank you.